if Bitcoin ever does compete with treasury bonds as the premier store of wealth in the world, that's a really, really big deal. That transforms the entire way the world economy works. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I'm going to kick off with Gemini, who I'm using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And as ever, as I tell you every show, I've not sold a single sat through Gemini yet. Why? Well, look at the price of Bitcoin. It's mooning. We're in a bull market. I'm selling my sats. Nobody's getting my sats cheap. And you know what? I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I. Com. Next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, Bitcoiners, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, I'm still using now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Lie software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And next up, we have the amazing Compass Mining. And they're not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs. I am now back mining Bitcoin. And with this price rise, I've nearly covered the cost of one of my S19s. I bought five. So hopefully, over the space of a year, they'll all be paid off. It is so good to be back mining. You know what? I really like these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And it can be easy for you. If you want to mine Bitcoin, you just pick your location, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the work for you. If you're interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. And also, let's talk about BlockFi who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. Not just that. You earn 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership and 2% back on everything you spend over $50,000 annually. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Ovik, hi. Hey, how's it going? I'm good, man. Thank you uh, Thank you for having us here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Welcome back to Austin. We're so happy to have you here. It's good to be back. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of Austin. I've been coming for years. Uh, I've just seen its competition in Nashville, which mm. big fan as well, but uh, it's great to be back here. It's good food, good people. And uh, thank you for letting us use your office. Nashville is way too muggy, man. I can't handle that weather. It is, but it's also a little bit more country. Yeah. I kind of like that. You like that? Yeah. yeah. I um, I went to a whiskey jam and uh, yeah, I just liked it. I just thought it was a cool place. But listen, if you can go between the two. Absolutely. I nonstop think- flights on. I think Southwest has nonstop flights to Nashville. I think it's, I think these parts, these kind of, I explained to you before we started this uh, uh, mix of where you have like a good mix of Democrats and Republicans yeah. together. I think it's where you get the best of America. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. Well, very excited to talk to you. Me too. You wrote an amazing article. Oh, thank you. And uh, thank you for sharing it. Uh, I will put it in the show notes. Everyone should read it. Bitcoin and the U.S. financial reckoning. Is that correct? U.S. Fiscal reckoning. Fiscal but reckoning. That too. That's it. Yeah. Um, 
not everyone who's going to tune into this might know you. Um, right. I've mentioned to a couple of people I'm interviewing you, and uh, some people know you, some people don't. So can we just do a background? So let people know who you are, and then we'll dig into this article. Yeah, so I, I have a, a, a very zigzaggy professional career. My, um, I went to college and majored in molecular biology. Then I went to med school. And then after med school, I got recruited by a then-unknown investment firm called Bain Capital to invest in biotech companies. I barely knew what a hedge fund was. So I spent a tw uh, 12 years on Wall Street as a healthcare investor, as a portfolio manager. And um, uh, I'll, I'll skip the Bitcoin parts of the story for now, and we can get back into it if you want. But um, when uh, Mitt Romney ran for president the second time in 2012, since my first job out of med school was at Bain Capital, he had uh, asked me to help him design his health reform plan for the 2012 presidential election. How many times did you get that call? So, mm -hmm. uh, so I said, sure. I took a year off of, of work to do that, and um, he obviously didn't win. So I didn't join the Romney administration, uh, and I thought I'd go back to Wall Street. But then a bunch of people started asking me, well, now that you're this Republican healthcare guy, what should we do? What should the healthcare plan be of the Republicans? And I said, well, it's pretty simple. You should embrace universal coverage universal health care, but show how free markets, free enterprise, the private sector can deliver it. Got a lot of blank stares uh, mm -hmm. when I when I said that. A lot of people, no, we're going to repeal Obamacare when we uh, when we get when we get in power in 2016. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the U.S. health care debates, Obamacare was the big health care reform plan that President Obama put out in uh, 2010. Do you consider that a, a success? Uh, I would say it is. Uh, uh, it was a success in certain ways and a failure in other ways. It certainly okay. didn't live up to expectations. And that was my crit criticism of it. The thing I always said about uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare was, yes, every American should have access to affordable health insurance. It's a major component of our financial security. Healthcare is so expensive here. If you aren't insured and you get a big bill, uh, you can go broke. It's a big problem. So, uh, you know, uh, there are ways to have a universal healthcare system that are much cheaper, more fiscally sustainable, and more innovative than the system we have. But but we haven't done it for various reasons. And so I said, well, I'm going to take two years to actually, I'm, I'm like, is, no one else wants to do this. So I literally just took two years off to say, okay, if one were to design a new way of doing healthcare in America that was universally private, meaning it's not a government-based system, it's a private-based system, where you have freedom to choose your own insurance plan, your own doctors, your own whatever, but for those who are vulnerable, those who are low income, you're protected. We're going to make sure that you have a backstop, a financial cushion to support your health healthcare needs and health insurance needs. And uh, uh, once I did that, I thought, okay, I'll hand it off to you know whoever and then go back to Wall Street. But then the 2016 candidates started calling. Um, and in the, in the me meantime, somehow I, I started blogging about healthcare just because I didn't know what else to do. And that took on a life of its own. Uh, Forbes made me its policy editor, which I still am. So I'm the policy editor of Forbes. I manage our, um, our public policy coverage. So I wrote about, a lot about healthcare and fiscal policy for them. And uh, I started a think tank called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, where we are uh, shooting this today, which focuses on how to achieve, uh, expand economic opportunity for Americans on the bottom half of the economic ladder using free enterprise, economic freedom, entrepreneurship, technological innovation, things like that. And, and, and the basic point, the, the thing that I took away from my healthcare work and the thing I took away from my, uh, my think tank work was politics. We think of politics as the left versus the right. And, and Bitcoin's a great example of this. It doesn't always have to be the left versus the right, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, you can achieve a progressive policy goal like universal health insurance but have a system that's actually more fiscally sustainable, where there's more choice, more innovation, more of a, a free market 
So there are ways for both sides to win. And that's not just true in healthcare, that's true in a lot of things. So basically what ended up happening is I was running a long, short equity healthcare portfolio during the financial crisis, um, saw from my, from my Bloomberg terminal uh, the end of the world in, in 2008. I had a bunch of, some, bunch of friends from that world who were into Austrian economics who were following Bitcoin from the very beginning, and they were in my ear about it. And but it was too intimidating for me. I was like, "What? I have to? I have to learn how to code. I, I have to figure out how to get a wall. How am I going to do all this? It's like you know, this is just too complicated. I can't run a node. Like, whoa, <laughs> I, I'm too busy. I'll figure this out eventually." And then what happened was uh, Mount Gox crashed. Yep. And went. I think Bitcoin went from like 1,200 to 300. I'm like, okay, if I don't drop everything and figure this out now, shame on me. So I did. I just paused everything for a minute, spent some time working on it. And I took a good chunk of my biotech winnings and, and plopped it into Bitcoin. Nice. And uh, uh, that just obviously, even though biotech has had a pretty good run over these last 10 years, <laughs> so has Bitcoin, so has crypto. So uh, I got, had to pay more and more attention to it and, and got more into it and, and certainly understood um, certain aspects of it where I had high conviction. You're like, for some people, they get into Bitcoin because they love the technology, Right. For me, I had that high conviction about the fiscal side of it, the monetary side of it, the mm -hmm. fact that healthcare is the biggest driver of America's debt and deficit crisis. And I spent a lot of time trying to reform and fix the U.S. healthcare system. So I know how hard it is firsthand, how hard it's going to be for us to solve our debt and deficit problems. So even though my day job involves trying to fix those problems, in a sense, my my portfolio, my investments, uh, and, and a lot of my kind of worldview is driven by the, the possibility, if not the likelihood, that we fail to solve these problems. And if we fail to solve these problems, what happens? And 2008 was a bit of a preview in that we saw around the world countries go into sovereign debt crises. It's not the first time that's ever happened, obviously. And uh, Bitcoin will obviously play over time. I shouldn't say obviously because it's not obvious to everyone. But uh, to us, it's obvious that over time, uh, Bitcoin will play an increasing role in, in, in that problem. Like how the U.S. finances debt, can it continue to run these trillions and trillions of dollars of debt? Can the world, can the advanced economies continue to do that? And before, we had no recourse, right? Countries would devalue their currency, and you, you couldn't do anything about it. You were stuck. When yep. Nixon left uh, the gold peg in 1971, as, as you know well. What the fuck uh, happened in 1971? Right, right. In fact, I, I, tried to give, uh, I, know. I tried to give Ben a shout-out in my article, and uh, they edited it out. So uh, apologies for, for that, Ben. We'll get a shout-out to Ben here. Yeah. So. And, and uh, uh, heavy arm clown. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, no one, no, you couldn't do anything about it. If you held dollars at that time in America— you were stuck. I mean, yes, if you were an institutional investor, you could buy gold, you could trade on it. But if you were just an average person, you were stuck. Your value, your dollars went down by 10, 20x. So today it's different, right? We have Bitcoin. And the question is, for, for how long will that be true? Uh, will we get to a point where the U.S. really does struggle to finance its debt? And when that happens, how does Washington react? Does Washington then look at Bitcoin as, a, as truly a competitor? Right now they look at Bitcoin sort of like, what is this thing? People are losing their money or making money. They're evading taxes. What are they doing? I don't know. But if the government eventually, the people in Washington eventually start to think of Bitcoin as a competitor to treasury bonds, which is the way I look at the world. You know, some people say, well, you know, you should be able to buy your coffee with Bitcoin. That's a competitor. And that's obviously, we're trying that out in El Salvador and other places. But the bigger story to me is if Bitcoin ever does compete with treasury bonds as the premier store of wealth in the world, 
That's a really, really big deal. That transforms the entire way the world economy works. And the reason I wrote this article that, that you mentioned is, is to try to walk Washington through that because the journal I published in, and I made a point of publishing it in that journal because it's something that's widely read in Washington. So just to help, help members of Congress, people in the Treasury Department, uh, staff who support uh, those agencies and individuals, help, help those who aren't fam- already familiar with cryptocurrency, which is most of them, have a way of thinking about that transition. The fact that, you know, as our debt piles up and piles up and piles up, the temptation is going to want to restrict that competition, prevent that competition from taking place. And the argument I try to make in the piece is, no, if you want to protect the ability of lower income and middle income Americans uh, to, to protect themselves from inflation, from the irresponsibility of the government, then you've got to allow them to have this alternative store of value. Well, a lot to unpack there. Um, I'm going to come back to the Bitcoin thing. Uh, I'm really fascinated about talking about the healthcare side of things. It's you know, not something I talk about a lot on the podcast. Uh, it's something I'm acutely aware of because we have a, a very dif- different system in the UK. Sure do. At the moment, we have universal healthcare, but it's state-run, which have it, has its you know pros and cons. It's highly inefficient. It wastes a lot of money, a lot of bureaucracy. But you know, if we ignore the fact that we've got these extended wait lists at the moment because of COVID. The, the fact of the matter is, in the UK, whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever age you are, whatever gender, whatever color you are, wh- wh- whoever you are, if you get knocked down, you have a heart attack, you get cancer, you will get treatment. You can be treated. And maybe not as fast as if you have private health care, but you also have the options. So uh, I have options to use the National health Service, but I also have very cheap private health care. My I pay £150 a month for myself, my son, and my daughter. That's pretty good. Yeah. I spend over 1000 a month, 1200 a month for myself here. And the equivalent of a deductible that you have, mine's like £150 or something. So when I had my back injury recently, I got back from the, uh, got back from the, where was I? Yeah, I was in El Salvador. Got back from El Salvador, uh, phoned up my uh, private health care, and within four days, I was in surgery and I was repaired. So I have that option. And, and a recent thing that uh, we've got is that there's quite, quite big uh, weights to get into the GPs, the general mm-hmm. practitioners. Uh, it can be two to three weeks because they're so busy. Uh, we've now got private GPs open up by appointment. So you yeah. can pay £50 and usually get seen that day or the day after. So we're starting to get uh, some kind of easing off on the pressure of the NHS because there's private services, but still have that universal health care. I think it's a pretty good system. You know, if I'm talking to some Bitcoiners, they're like, no, this is socialism. This is state run. It's, it's really bad. I'm pretty sure if you surveyed people in the UK, 95% of people plus would say, no, we like this system. It can be improved, but we like this system. I come out to the US and I have friends here. And you know, I, I remember meeting somebody and they were telling me of a story of like uh, his uh, daughter. Um, she uh, broke her finger surfing. He called the wrong ambulance. He was meant to call one company called the wrong one, and he got thousands. He had to pay thousands of pounds. He had £5,000 deductible. He ended up just spending an awful lot of money. I've heard about people like with a broken leg having to remortgage their house because they didn't have uh, healthcare coverage. So it's a big intro, but something I'm acutely aware of. You you must have studied UK and other uh, health systems around the world. What what is What do you believe the perfect model is? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a question I care about and a lot actually. And we actually at at FreeUp, my think tank, we have a a whole program called the World Index of Healthcare Innovation, where we rank the top thirty one countries, that is to say, the wealthiest thirty one countries by income by GDP per capita around the world that have a population over five million. 
and compare them on all sorts of metrics that you'd want us to compare them on, not just how many people have health insurance, which is sort of a traditional thing that people look at, but how good is how good are the health outcomes? How much choice do you have in your treatment, in your doctor? How much innovation, scientific innovation, is actually going on in that country? How many patents? How much R&D? How many Nobel Prizes? Um, and how much IT is being used to, to advance the quality of care and delivery? And, and, and we actually, uh, we ranked, the U.S. Uh, ranked a, a fifth in our survey. Number one was Switzerland. The top three were Switzerland, Germany, and the Netherlands. And I can't remember this year if it was uh, Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands, one, two, three, or it was Switzerland, Netherlands, Germany. But uh, Switzerland, Netherlands, Germany, and Ireland was fourth, and the U.S. was fifth. And I think the U.K. was like eighth or ninth, so it wasn't at the bottom. Okay. That's quite interesting because um, if I compare and contrast the U.K. and the U.S., I I think I prefer the U.K. system, but I know if I was in the U.S., I could afford private health care. So like, but I think as, like, as a net, I prefer it. But the one thing I'm you know, clearly aware of between the two is that if I'm relying on the NHS, I'm probably going to have to wait a longer time to get seen um, because I'd be, you know, be obliged to have healthcare coverage here. I also feel like US uh, healthcare innovation is way ahead of the UK. We have a lot of people who raise money to come and get treatment in the US for specific cancer treatments because you're way ahead. Is is that where the UK falls down? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the the, the US got dinged in our in our survey on a couple of things. One, affordability, okay. exactly what you said. Uh, another, which is related, is fiscal sustainability because we we spend so much on healthcare, not just on the private side, but the public spending on healthcare. Gov- U.S. government subsidies for healthcare per capita is higher than every other country in the world, even though there are people who are uninsured here, even though it's still expensive when you're paying out of pocket. It's, that's how bad our system is. So we ding the U.S. really heavily for that, for those two things, affordability and fiscal sustainability. But where the U.S. really dominates, uh, the, the gap between the number one and number two country on, on this particular thing was massive, was science and technology. Right, okay. Nobel Prizes per capita, uh, patents per capita, new drugs developed by companies native to that country. The UK actually does pretty well on a lot of these. Uh, on a lot of these things, uh, the UK scientific culture is very, very strong, and that's why the UK ranked as highly as it did. If it weren't for the scientific culture and the academic culture of, of Oxbridge and things like that in the UK, the UK probably would have done worse because of the wait times and other things. Affordability right. is good in the UK, but it's it's good in a number of countries. So that alone wouldn't distinguish it from, say, a France. Right. So what 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 is it the Swiss have got so right? What the Swiss do really well is they they've they've got and Germany is like this too they're all they're Germany the Switzerland are, are very similar in terms of our rankings slightly different systems but similar in our rankings they're basically all private systems so in Switzerland everyone chooses their own insurance it's not like you have the NHS or if you can afford to get outside the NH system you can in Switzerland everybody buys their own health insurance and and it's bought as an individual so you have complete choice there are dozens of insurers competing with one another you have access to all the latest technology. So a, a new drug comes out. The Swiss get it pretty quickly, uh, as, to, as do the Brits, actually, believe it or not. Uh, you have new treatments. You have, uh, you have a system that's fiscally very sustainable. And a big part of why it's sustainable is unlike the NHS system where the government's paying for everybody's health care regardless of whether you need the help or not, the Swiss system, they basically subsidize the bottom quarter of the population. They say, look, if you're middle class or you're upper middle class, you can afford to buy your own health insurance. You can afford to buy your cable bill, your your, your cell phone contract. You should be able to afford health insurance too. So uh, so because of that, their system costs the government a lot less. 
And so from a fiscal sustainability, it's really good, along with having the universality, the affordability, and the choice. So it's, it's a really good thing to point to Americans, because Americans, will, a lot of Americans falsely believe that our system is the most free market system in the world. It's not, not even close. As I mentioned before, government subsidies per capita here are the highest in the world. We have a heavily regulated system. We basically have the worst of both worlds. We massively subsidize the system, but we don't actually try to make it affordable. So uh, there, are a lot, there are a lot of things that U.S. needs to improve on to get better. And, and a, a part of that, that, that argument that we, we put forward in the in World Index of Healthcare Innovation is to help people who think the status quo is just fine. And, and they're saying, well, if we become more like Europe, that's bad. Actually, there are countries in Europe that are a better model if you believe in a more uh, a choice-oriented and competitive-oriented system. Right. So in terms of the U.S. system, if, if you're getting the best of both worlds, who's winning in this, because I always believe there must be somebody winning. Is it lobbyists? Is it the is it the insurance companies themselves? Is it the uh, is it the pharmaceutical companies? Somebody must be winning in this. The simplest way to put it is, in the U.S., we spend about four trillion dollars a year on healthcare. So the people who are receiving the four trillion dollars have a very powerful incentive for that number to go up and not down. Right, and they have a lot of money to uh, and a lot of resources to convince Congress and the, the executive branch, the presidency, uh, that they're right. Uh, and that's, uh, to give an example, one of the examples that actually doesn't get highlighted a lot is the hospital industry. In pretty much every part of America, uh, the two largest employers are the public schools and the hospital. So if you're a member of Congress and your hospital uh, comes to you, the CEO of that hospital is probably making $10 million a year, comes to you and says, uh, gosh, if you try to do anything to lower the cost of hospital care, then we're going to go broke. We'll have to close this hospital. And you know, tens of thousands of jobs could be lost. You, you, you're, as a congressman, you're like, well, you're probably BSing me. But if you're not, I'm the one who's going to get blamed if I sign on to this. And everyone just runs around terrified that if they try to reduce the cost of hospital care, whether it's through competition, through price controls, whatever, whether you're left or right, whatever method you would like to use to reduce the cost of care, the price of care, um, people are afraid to do it because the, the hospitals uh, are that large employer, particularly in rural areas where sometimes they are the largest employer. So that's an example of how hard it is, how entrenched uh, the interests are to make the system better. It's not just the hospitals. It's the pharmaceutical industry. It's doctors. It's, uh, it's everything pretty much. Well, there's a similar problem with the um, the prison system as well, because I spent a lot of time with Lynn Albrick, the mother mm. of, of Ross Albrick, mm -hmm. and uh, she's become a, whilst she's been campaigning to try and have Ross freed, she's also become a campaigner for prison reforms. Um, and she said one of the biggest problems is, is that where the prisons are, they are often the biggest employer in the town. So to have any form of prison reform, which maybe would remove nonviolent criminals from jails, would lead to a loss of jobs, and that would not be popular in local communities. So it sounds like that's a very, almost a very similar scenario. You know, you're, you're right, and, and you're reminding me that since, since she's relatively local, I should reach out to her here, here in Austin, right? I mean, or at least I, think I, know. I think she might have moved, actually. Uh, but, like, if you want to connect with her, I can connect yeah, you with do. her. She, you know, she'd probably love to hear from you. Because we do work in criminal justice reform, too. So we work on all sorts of things. We work on, obviously, now crypto, but also healthcare, energy, housing policy, criminal justice, all sorts of areas where education reform, uh, all sorts of areas that, that where... Uh, we think innovation and free enterprise can drive progressive policy outcomes. And about 70% of our work has to do with the rising cost of living. 
which is partly about monetary policy, but it's also about other things. It's about regulations and subsidies and rules that allow people or incentivize people to raise their price. You take the way college, uh, how much college costs in America, a big part of that is we massively subsidize the cost of college in terms of these loans, these student loan programs that are run by the federal government, but we don't hold colleges accountable for what they charge. So basically we say, oh, we, we want college to be free, so let's just basically pay the bill as a government. But the end result is the colleges say, oh, thank you very much. We're just going to raise our prices by 10% and just get more and more money. And there's and that's exactly how healthcare works here too. So so we have a lot of problems like that in America where the cost of everyday life is, is going up. And our argument is that if we actually bring uh, a more decentralized, pro-competition, pro-choice approach to those, those areas of the economy, you can make life better for a lot of people. How do you break the deadlock of the incentives for the hospitals and the pharmaceuticals? Because it, it points to another thing I've been thinking a lot about recently. I, a few months ago, I spent a lot of time uh, reading the U.S. Constitution and the, you know, the forming of uh, modern America. And, you know, it feels to me at the moment politics is very broken in the U.S. Um, but it should – it's broken in some ways, but in other ways it's great. Like the, the, the state system is proven to work. We see in migration of people to here, to Nashville, to Miami. You know, people are you know, moving their companies and their jobs based on the local rules. That, that to me is a system that works because my only option in the U.K. is to leave the country. I can't yeah, move to London totally. and have different rules or Manchester. And I, and I envy that. But at the same time, politics is, seems to have just become this – I don't want to use the word corrupt, just broken, dirty system of fighting, arguing, perpetuated by the media and social media, uh, not really working for the people. It feels it feels like the, with the forming of the US uh, Constitution, it was about uh, a government for the people, and it feels now, now it's a government for the corporations. And that's probably something you've looked at. And if I've, if I've said anything wrong here because I'm British, you, have, you must... You can uh, fix my errors, but do you see what I'm saying? Uh, totally, and, and a couple couple points I'll make related to that. The first is it's absolutely hard to try to change these structural problems in America, which is exactly why I'm doing. This is exactly mm. why I dropped out of the hedge fund business to take on these problems because I want to be able to look back on my life when I'm 80 and feel like I tried to solve something really hard. Maybe I'll fail. I'll probably fail, uh, but in the 15% chance that we that we succeed at free op, then we've changed history. We've done something really important for this country. So that's why we do it. Because it's 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 a lot easier to say, okay, we're gonna take some small problem and solve that and then count that as a win, because what we want are wins. And for us, yes, those those things are important. I don't want to discount the importance of incremental progress. Uh, but solving the big problems matters too. So once once you actually try, once you say your goal is to solve those big structural problems, you have to think about them very differently. And this gets to the second part of my answer, which is, okay, if you want to solve these structural problems of how, you, how do you take on the hospital industry or how do you take on the kind of corporate industrial subsidy crony capitalism kind of complex that we have in, in the U.S. and work backwards from there, how do you solve that problem? And one of the most important things you have to do to solve that problem is you've got to address some of the political divisions in the country. So that's where you get to the whole idea of free ops mission where we say we're trying to solve progressive uh, we're going to we're trying to answer progressive policy problems or, or the solutions to progressive policy problems using free enterprise. So it's a way of uniting people who think of themselves as Republican and people who think of themselves as Democrats or people who think of themselves as moderates and say, hey, there are solutions that you can advance that you can advocate for from in terms of standpoint of legal reform, regulatory reform, whatever. 
that cha- that are that allow you to champion your values. These aren't compromises. These aren't things that split the difference. These are things where you can say this is a progressive thing to do or this is a free market thing to do and not be wrong. Both can be true at the same time. Just as I think one of the things that that we both love about Bitcoin is that it can do that too, right? It is both progressive and also very pro-freedom at the same time. So what do you think about term limits and age limits for members of Congress? Because that's something that came up recently. I met somebody who's running for Congress, and she said one of the biggest issues is that we don't have term limits. She thinks that's one of the most important policy changes that the U.S. could have is term limits and age limits on um, people in Congress. What do you feel about that? Because you have term limits for the presidency. We do. Um, you know, I think age limits is an interesting idea. That, that she, the, there's a good side and a bad side to term limits. The good side is, uh, I think, what's obvious to most people, which is people get too comfortable in Washington. They, they become insiders. They only, they're only responsive to lobbyists. And uh, that only becomes more so over time. And, and they just lose perspective from the real world. All that's true. There's one uh, downside, which is when you're dealing with all these highly technical things that the government now regulates or controls, uh, it is valuable to have policy knowledge. Okay. Right? Like you talking about the healthcare system is a great example, right? Healthcare is incredibly complicated in the US. And if you have people who've only been serving for four or eight years, it's very hard to learn enough about the healthcare system to actually know it well, especially when as a member of Congress, you're doing 20 different things at the same time. You know, you're rarely very focused on one single issue. I mean, yes, like for example, we know that Cynthia Lummis loves uh, crypto and she's very interested in that, but she's also having to, you know, uh, deal with a lot of other issues that don't have anything to do with crypto that mm-hmm. are important to her state in Wyoming, right? And that's true of every member of Congress. So it's very hard for members of Congress to have that depth in an issue. And if they're there a little bit longer, that helps. But I do think the age thing would help because I think what you see a lot of times is these 80-year-old senators who who think everything is the same it was when they were 30 and it's not and there and there are new solutions to problems that weren't available when they were maybe out in the private sector out in the free world. So I feel like there there could be a lot more turnover and that would be helpful. Right, okay. So the big problems that need solving, the biggest yeah. problems that need solving, uh and a big question like what are they? What what would you what would you tackle first and how would you tackle it? Well, boy, uh, there are a lot of big problems, but I'd say, what are the, what's the biggest problem? Uh, maybe that's the way to put it. And the biggest problem, the single biggest problem in America is the fact that America is insolvent. Everything else really stems from that. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, if America, like we have grown up, you know, you didn't grow up here, but for those of us who did, uh, but all of us grew up in a, the Pax Americana. Like we grew up in a world that was basically where the U.S. was the leading power, especially after the end of the Cold War. And we're just kind of used to that st- relative stability in the world that comes from there being that order of, okay, the U.S. is the, is the leading power and the U.S. is a relatively benign leading power. We're not trying to generally uh, conquer other countries and incorporate them in the United States. Um, and so, you know, people complain about the U.S., but relative to other, you know, leading powers over the, over, over the lens of human history, the U.S. has actually been pretty good. And the problem is what happens if the U.S. can't finance its debts? What if the U.S. has a massive economic crash? Then what? Uh, and and I think that's that's a huge problem. And we're and we're instead of actually trying to solve it, in certain ways we're making it worse. The various spending bills that Congress is considering now, the massive printing of U.S. dollars at the Federal Reserve, we're doing things to actually drive us accept, push the accelerator down in terms of going over the cliff, not trying to slow down. So. To me, that's that's the biggest problem that we have to solve because if we don't solve that, all the other problems become 
really trivial. Well, there's no incentive for any any president to take that you know, medicine to 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 give up. I can. I explained to somebody recently. It's like any addiction. You can put off all your addictions. I'll give up tomorrow. I'll give up the next day. I'll give up the next day because giving up on any form of addiction is very difficult. You, know, you have to go through a cold turkey period. You have to go through a withdrawal period, and it feels like I think, I think even Jack Mozuka referred to that to me a long time ago. He said, "Really, America has a, an addiction now to printing money, and for any president to take the foot off the gas means they're going to be the one that led them into a." perhaps very tough economic period, which has all its associated, associated geopolitical issues and, and a contagion that will spread around the world. But it feels like there's no incentive for any president to take that. Why would they? I agree with you to a significant degree, but here's where I might offer a, a note of optimism, which is Great. like, you know, most people who are in politics in America, in most countries, right, they want to be president someday. Mm-hmm. They, they look in the mirror and they see a president in the mirror, right? Yep. But once you've actually been president, what really matters, what really matters, what should matter, and I think what matters to a lot of presidents is what's their place in history, mm-hmm. right? 50 years after you're president, what are people going to think of your presidency? That starts to matter a lot to presidents once you've actually made it to the White House. And so I think once you get to that point, yes, you know, it's, the problem is all those things you did to climb up the ladder, that's your, those are your habits. Your habits are always to think about the next election or how am I doing in the mm-hmm. polls or if that's always going to be a part of your cast of mind as a politician. But I do think that some presidents, more than others, really try to think hard about their legacy. What are people going to think of me 50 years from now? And if you are thinking about that, then you, you're going to be much more concerned about the problems that we've been discussing. So how bad is this economic position from your perspective? Obviously, you wrote the article, right? the, the fiscal reckoning, and how close do you believe the U.S. is to their fiscal reckoning? I mean, what is the fiscal reckoning? Like, What's the point in time we're heading towards? Well, this is one of the things that I, I talk about at length in the, in the piece, which is uh, people who are fiscal hawks that, that, that raise a lot of concerns about the debt and deficit and say, you know, this is a real problem in America. You know, we can't do this for long. The, the counter argument to that is, well, we've been doing it. We've been doing it for 50, 60 years, and we're still number one. You know, does real, I mean, inflation, you know, yes, inflation is up right now and is where we're recording this in 2021. But over the last uh, 30 years since or 40 years since Reagan and Volcker tamped down inflation uh, in, in 1981, we haven't had a lot of inflation in the U.S. So you have a lot of people say, well, what's the big deal? People still buy treasury bonds. Inflation is low. So obviously it doesn't matter if we rack up all this debt. Who cares? Nobody cares. We're living in some sort of new world where none of this really matters. Um, and that, they, that has been true up to now. And so the question is, what changes that? And, and what I walk through in the article are some indicators that it's starting to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is to say, to start to use one example, how is it exactly that we borrow money as a country? It's not that different from actually the way we borrow money as people. So as people, we borrow money by taking out a mortgage on our house or, or getting a credit card. And the credit card company agrees to lend us the money or the bank agrees us to, to do the mortgage. Um, and they're only going to lend us that money if they think we can pay it back. And if they're worried that we're not going to pay it back, they might charge us a higher interest rate, right? And that's pretty much how it works with governments too. So governments issue treasury bonds or treasury bonds in the case of the U.S. or sovereign debt in the case of countries in general. And the individuals and investors and institutions that buy those treasury bonds are effectively lending the U.S. government money. And the way that the bond markets work is, if there's a lot of demand for the, those bonds, if people really want to buy those bonds, 
the effective result is the interest rate is lower. And if there's weak demand for the bonds, the interest rate goes up. And and also risk with risk. the bonds. Exactly. So you can get a high interest rate for Argentinian bonds, but they come at high risk. Right, and that's exactly how those things all go together, right? So the reason why the interest rate is higher is because you're worried that the default risk mm-hmm. is higher. That's why you actually demand a higher interest rate. And so people look at treasury bonds and say, well, hey, treasury bond interest rates are really low. They're near zero. This is true in Europe, too. This is true in Japan. So obviously, there's no problems, right? We, we have almost zero interest rates. So clearly, nobody cares about the U.S. debt. But that's not true because the, the interest rate that right now you can get on a U.S. treasury bond is, is effectively an artificial rate. That's not a true market rate for a number of different reasons, the most important of which is that the Federal Reserve is buying up a good chunk, roughly half, depending on exactly how you count it, roughly half of the Treasury bonds that the Treasury Department issues are being bought not by outside investors, not by outside governments or companies or hedge funds, but by the Federal Reserve. And that's a problem. It's kind of like if you take out a credit card, Peter, and you rack up a huge bill and you say, gosh, I don't think I can pay this bill. I'm going to take out another credit card, pay off the first credit card bill, and then, you know, we'll, we'll worry about the next second credit card bill later. And I've got friends who've done that. <laughs> and I know how that ends up. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And, and and so that's, you know, that's that's kind of what we've been doing. And there are a couple of other things I talk about in the piece. That's not the only one. So mm-hmm. there's a, a, a informal form of banking regulation called the Basel Accords, uh, which basically is a is it's a group of countries, you know, financially significant countries that get together and basically try to harmonize their banking regulations so that you don't have a situation where some banks are being very conservative in in their capital cushions and other banks are not, and so all the capital flows to the the more risky banks and that creates systemic problems for the world economy. So they try to harmonize their rules, and one of the things they do to harmonize the rules is say, we're going to reward you if you hold. Treasury bonds are going to punish you if you own risky assets like Bitcoin, for example. They don't want uh, banks to own Bitcoin. Uh, but we're going to reward you if you own Treasury bonds. If you own Treasury bonds, we're basically going to treat that like hard cash. And so what ends up happening, if you're Bank of America or Deutsche Bank or which, whatever bank it is, bank, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sumitomo in, in Japan, you're rewarded for owning U.S. Treasury bonds and some other forms of government debt as well, but particularly U.S. Treasury bonds because there's so many of them because we're so big as a country. And so for reasons like that, uh, there's an artificial increased demand for U.S. debt. People want to buy it because they're effectively steered that way or forced that way by regulators, along with you have the Federal Reserve buying them. So you have the situation where the the demand for Treasury bonds is goosed and the interest rates are artificially low. And what happens over time? You can't continue that forever. And the reason you can't continue that forever is because the debt is growing and growing and growing. When Obama left office, the federal debt, the U.S. federal debt, was $8 trillion. Today, it's $29 trillion. Within 10, 20 years, it could be $100 trillion. So you're having to issue more and more of this treasury debt, these treasury bonds. Who's going to buy them? And what we see if we look at some of those underlying indicators is very alarming. Sounds like a racket. Uh, you know, the, uh, there have been a lot of uh, s- uh, strong words or descriptors used to describe the U.S. Uh, fiscal situation. Ponzi scheme is one you hear a lot. Racket is another. It, it's a big problem. And, you know, you started with the question of how long will it take for this to play out? None of us know. right? None of us know when the, the denouement will happen. But 
what we do know is that the problem is getting worse. So one of the indicators I talk about in the article is that the share of treasury bonds owned by foreign investors has declined by like 20% over the last 10 years. And the share owned by the Federal Reserve has gone up by about 10% over the last 10 years. Those curves are going to cross. We're going to get to a point pretty soon when the single largest holder of U.S. debt is the U.S. government. And that's just not, that's that's Latin America level monetary and fiscal policy. That just does not fly. And yes, we're the biggest country in the world. We can probably get away with it longer than most. And the U.S. dollar is the world currency. And there are a lot of reasons why we're going to be able to get away with it longer than a random country that can't issue debt in its own currency, right? We, that is a big advantage, the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. But there comes a point where there just aren't enough banks out there or governments out there with trillions of dollars to put into treasury bonds. Does it become easier for the the U.S. to default when they're the ones holding the debt? And is that really a default on the people? I mean, are we we're really talking about. I mean, could we even see a situation? Is, I'm, I'm trying try, try to articulate this, but I'm thinking: is this the, the equivalent of chopping zeros off the Venezuela Bolivar? It's, it, it's, it can be like that. So you know, there's different kinds of default. The, the, the formal or hard default that most people are familiar with is like you don't pay your rent. Or but, in the case of the U.S., you don't pay the bond. But that's know? not going to happen, right? They're going to soft default via, uh, via inflation. inflation. Yeah, exactly. So the, the way the U.S. has been doing it effectively, I mean, monetary expansion is a form of default, right? Yeah. If, you tr- if you double the number of U.S. dollars in circulation, uh, all else being equal, each of those dollars is worth half. That's a form of default. When, when Nixon left uh, the gold peg in 1971, that was a, a default, um, so there are there are things that we're doing that actually should be called defaults that aren't. And the question is, at what point do people decide that they're tired of it? And that's where Bitcoin comes in, right? Bitcoin, as we record this, is uh, 12 years old. What happens when Bitcoin is 25 years old? When people get more used to it, when the people who are in their 40s and running multi-billion dollar funds, they've lived their whole lives, their whole certainly sentient lives in a world where Bitcoin existed. And they don't think of it as this novelty. They think of it as just part of the part of the ether, just like Facebook. You know, kids grow up now, they were, they, they were born after Facebook was invented. For them, Facebook is what their grandparents used to talk to each other, right? There comes a point where Bitcoin is the same. It's the thing that your grandparents use as opposed to the other <laughs> way around. And at that point, you're going to see more and more people think of Bitcoin the way Ray Dalio and Paul Tudor Jones do, where they say, you know what? I'm not going to go whole hog into Bitcoin. I'm not going to put 90% of my fund into Bitcoin, but am I going to start to gradually shave off what I allocate to treasury bonds and shave in what I allocate to Bitcoin? That is happening and will continue to happen. And there comes a point where that transition is complete that uh, the U.S. will have a tough time financing its debt. And look, it's going to be really uh, a challenging time for the U.S. And I think one of the things I try to uh, talk about in the article is not to sugarcoat that, right? Mm. Like a lot of us who who support what Bitcoin stands for, we want to we say, well, this world in which Bitcoin takes over is going to be so awesome and so wonderful. And look, it will be a freer world in a lot of ways than the world we live in now. But there will be pain points along the way. Of course. I mean, that's one of the things I often talk about to Bitcoin is it's like, I, I sometimes I don't enjoy celebrating certain things that people s- seem to celebrate because it's good for Bitcoin because we know the people who are going to be most affected by this. It's not going to be the wealthiest. It's going to be the middle and lower class is going to be most affected by this. I just want to come back to the default though because a hard default is, is hard to argue against. Somebody doesn't pay their debt. They've, they've defaulted. Um, a soft default via inflation, so the, um, 
there's a strong argument that the US government is is in the process of defaulting right now because 5.4% inflation, which I think nobody agrees is actually real. Right. Um, I've, I've really noticed the increase of costs on this trip, uh, the amount of money I'm paying for things. One morning I got uh, uh, with Preston Pish and we got two bacon and egg sandwiches and two bottles of water. It was like $38. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. You know, um, but I've, I've really noticed increasing prices. I was with my friend uh, Brandy yesterday. She's a hairdresser. She's had to put up her prices 20%, 30% because of the materials. Her, her uh, materials have gone up so right. much. Her rent's gone up so much. So this 5.4% inflation, I don't think anyone really believes. So my question is, could we argue that the US is defaulting right now? And, and also, have you looked into how bad this might actually get? Uh, the answer is, uh, I think, yes and yes, which is to say that, that I completely agree with you, and I talk about this in the article, the fact that the, the conventional measures of inflation, consumer price index and the personal consumption expenditures that the Fed uses, these are artificial, artificially designed measures of inflation that, that in various ways exclude the things that are actually driving up the cost of living for average Americans. <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, uh, to give to give one example, just the way that the the CPI and PCA measure housing costs. Yep. You know, which I know you've talked about on your show, the mm-hmm. owner's equivalent rent, which is basically there's this survey where they ask you, okay, if you were to rent out your house, how much do you think you could charge in rent? Which most people don't know. They've never rented out a house. They've never been a landlord. How would they know? Right. When all you have to do is look at Zillow or any of these other third party databases, you know how much home prices are going up. And look, if you own your house, that's great. You're making more money. If you have money in the stock market, which is where all the, the extra dollars the Fed prints go, that's great. You know, you're doing well. But if you haven't bought a house yet and you're trying to or you're renting or you don't have a lot of savings and you don't know where to start, you're for falling further and further behind. Uh, and that's uh, that's a huge problem. So socially, it's a huge problem. And uh, and in terms of what what is actually um, uh, the return on a treasury bond, which is a way to think about 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 your point about you know whether or not people should own treasury bonds or not from a standpoint of are we defaulting? If you use the conventional metric, which is you know the interest rate on the treasury bond minus the inflator, if the inflator is five percent, if you're using that number, and the interest rate on the bond is uh, half a percent, then yeah, that's a negative return of four and a half percent. That's not great, Bob. And uh, that's before you think about the fact that if you're an institutional investor, if you're Ray Dalio, say, that's not how you're judged. You're not judged on whether you outperform inflation. You're judged by whether or not you outperform uh, the the stock market, right? So uh, the stock market is booming because of all those extra Fed dollars floating in the system. The venture capital market booming because of all those Fed dollars flowing into the system. And so when you're competing against those asset classes, let alone crypto, to try to figure out how you beat them, holding treasury bonds becomes less and less appealing. And that's for professional investors. Think about it if you're a government, right? Let's say you are Germany, right? And, and, and Germany is a very conservative place. They're going to be probably the last people to try to take on some of these more cutting edge uh, investment approaches. But they're also very attuned to the problem of inflation. They have obviously a long history of it with the Weimar Republic, and, mm-hmm. and they care a lot about it. They're very, I mean, it's the country that has done the best in terms of being fiscally responsible precisely because it's seared into their brain what a tragedy fiscal irresponsibility and fiscal crises and monetary crises can be. And I think the rest of the EU is grateful. <laughs> right. I mean, if it weren't for Germany, yeah, the, the EU would look very different. That's absolutely right. So, uh, 
but think about that. If, if you're Germany, uh, what are you doing right now? You're basically guaranteeing that your balance sheet, the money that you have in your treasury, is declining in value every month, every year. The, the famous uh, an analogy of Michael Saylor, it's a melting ice cube. Mm-hmm. right? And that just can't go on forever. right? It can go on for a time where you put up with it, when it's a trickle. But, but there comes a point where, particularly as more and more countries, if the El Salvador experiment works and that country becomes a wealthy country over time and other countries start to follow that and say, you know what, we're going to put some uh, uh, Bitcoin on our balance sheet. Then what happens? Right? And they start to see that outperformance over time, over a 10, 20, 30-year period. It becomes this kind of snowball effect. And, and, and a way to analogize it for those of us who are old enough to remember is when Netflix destroyed Blockbuster or when Amazon destroyed Barnes & Noble, right? So these, these big big box chains of bookstores in the case of Barnes & Noble or uh, video cassette rental uh, rentals and DVD rentals in the case of Blockbuster, they didn't fall apart. They didn't go broke overnight when Netflix came on the scene or when Amazon came on the scene. It took 10 years, right? And so something similar will happen here. It may not be 10 years. It may be 20 years. I don't know. But it will happen in our lifetimes. I think I'm pretty certain about that. I think I, I, if I, if you put a gun to my head and made me predict, I'd say within 10 to 20 years. Well, there's two aspects to this. There's the high street banks. You know, we we refer to them as Lloyd's, NetWest, Royal Bank Scotland in the UK. It's Wells Fargo, Chase, etc. Here, but there's also the money itself and central banks, and both are being disrupted at the same time. Right. Um, we should probably talk about both, but let's let's just talk about El Salvador because you did mention it. You know, if it works. I would say right now it's working, yeah. And uh, and I would say there's kind of three indicators that show me it's working. So we have, uh, I think the last numbers reported, two point one million people have downloaded the Chivo wallet. Three million now. Is it so three I, million? I wrote a piece today for Forbes about wow. it. three million is the latest number from Bukele. I mean, so it's from Bukele. Uh, I've obviously interviewed him, and but he does work for the government, and so we don't know the exact figures. But yeah. even if it's two million, right. these are this is potentially. And we know, say, 70% of people don't have bank accounts. Right. We're talking about millions of people are now getting access to banking services. We've seen the report that more money is being used to buy Bitcoin than to sell Bitcoin now. So we've had the we've had the initial dump, whoever wanted to get rid of it. We have the, is it $2 million, pound, $2 million a day or a week that's been sent back by uh, remittance? Uh, and also, all the Bitcoin they've bought is now in the green. Right. So I would say right now it's a success. We don't know in six months, a year. We don't know if there'll be a bear market. We don't know if the price will be stable. We don't know if, you know, that, that's to be proven. But even if the price changes, even if the price of Bitcoin drops and, you know, maybe their Bitcoin investment on, on, on a certain time scale isn't in the green, all the additional investment, opportunity, money, banking services brought to the country, to me, is already proven it's a success. I think if someone like Hanky only points to the price of Bitcoin, he's missing the actual bigger picture for El Salvador. They're plugged into a open monetary network. Everybody's interested in it. You know, loads of us have been to visit. Loads of us have witnessed what's happened. So, I already think it's a success. It's depends on your measures. Yeah, Hanky used to be one of my uh, contributors uh, in the Forbes uh, policy team, and oh, wow. uh, he's not there anymore. But we 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 tweak each other on various other media, uh, and, and so uh, yeah, we uh, we have different views on that topic. I mean, I think that what's really interesting, you know. The, the National Affairs article that we've been talking about, I don't mention price really at all in that article mm. because it's more about that long view uh, uh, issue of what happens to the U.S. government and the Fed and, and Treasury bonds. But what's interesting in the case of El Salvador is 
September 2021 was when the law became effective. And that month was not, from a price standpoint, a great month for Bitcoin. It went from like 47,000 to like 41,000. Mm-hmm. And even so, the Chiva wallet was downloaded by 3 million people. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, gives you an indicator of the resilience or the robustness of the effort. And there was a new thing that was announced uh, relatively recently where they're gonna, you're going to get a 20 cent per gallon discount on your gas if you if you pay through the Chivo wallet as opposed to- Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. So they, they uh, the, the Chivo negotiated with the, the the gas stations or the, I don't know if it's the petrol companies directly or the gas stations, but they're going to have a twenty cent discount because I guess of uh, because of middleman fees or whatever they can they can pass on some of those savings to to the consumers. So right. you know if you're if you're uh, you know if you have a if you have a car in El Salvador that's that's a big deal, right? So uh, the adoption is only going to grow there. And and what, the, the last sentence in my Forbes article, uh, the the most recent one is. Look, if, if Bitcoin can work for the poorest Salvadorans, it can work for everyone. And I think that's what makes the Salvadoran experiment so interesting and so important. I think a lot about uh, the Cl- Clayton Christensen, who was this Harvard Business School professor who came up with this concept of, the, of disruptive innovation. And, and the big uh, contribution intellectually of his was the, the way a lot of innovation and disruptive innovation happens is it starts with the low end of the market. So the Japanese car companies come into America and they start selling these compact cars that, that cost 5,000 bucks. And, and the Cadillacs and the Lincolns, the big brands are like, huh, those guys are selling these cheap imports. We don't want any cheap imports. That's not where the margins, the profit margins are in our business. But the Japanese, by perfecting a low-cost, reliable car that doesn't break down for that lower-income worker they eventually move up the value chain. They start building, you know, Toyota starts building Lexuses and Honda starts building, building Acuras. And, and they all of a sudden, you know, have uh, basically drive the, the Detroit companies to bankruptcy. I grew up uh, outside of Detroit, so I, wow. I, I, I lived this story. And, and that's, that's what I see in El Salvador, is that if Bitcoin can prove itself in that market uh, with effectively, you know, very affordable transaction fees, and all the reliability that we know that the Bitcoin network has, then uh, then there's really not much reason why it won't work everywhere. Well, and that's a really interesting point because Bukele was pretty brave to do this. Whatever he says, it's a brave move to become the first country. It starts to become common sense for the second and third, but you don't want to be the last because you miss most of the opportunity. It'd be too late and you've missed most of the opportunity. You're doing it out of obligation rather than opportunity. Uh, I think I've seen, I mean... Brazil now, I think I've seen, is taking a look. We've heard Panama, Cuba, you know, various countries now, Ukraine. Um, so I, I think the next steps now be interesting. Okay, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Let's talk about Exus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, regular listeners know, especially the ones who hear these ads every week, UX is super important to me. I think UX makes Bitcoin a lot easier for no coiners to come in to learn about Bitcoin and use Bitcoin. So when Exodus reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app and they crushed it, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, let's talk about Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, listen, Bitcoin's mooning again. And if you have not got a Casa multi-sig wallet, it's something you really should be thinking about. Because forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. 
But with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again because a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets and you get to distribute these wallets into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, I've been a customer for over a year, so if you've got any questions, you can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And lastly, let's talk about Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming. Do you know why? Why they accept Bitcoin. Yes, you can deposit your Bitcoin on Sportsbet.io and go out there and make a few bets. Now, the football season is well underway. It's been a great start. Liverpool are doing pretty well. Tottenham have had a ropey middle bit. It's kind of going how we want it. But look, even if you don't like football, Sportsbet have got you covered. Alongside football, they support tennis, they support motorsports, US sports, they even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io forward slash promotions. So let's get back to the, the problem in the US and uh, the role that Bitcoin will play in this, because... Again, it's another interesting thing. Bitcoin feels like a very American idea for me and a very you know, Texan idea as well. But it feels like a very American idea. You know, it's, it's innovation and it pr- protects private property. Uh, it, but it feels like a very non-US government idea. Mm-hmm. It's you know, lack of control. That said, it hasn't been banned in the US while it has been banned in various other countries throughout the world. And actually, we're starting to see a lot of interest from people within Congress or political figures or mayors or you know, governors, uh, primarily on the Republican side, Senator Lummis, uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, we've seen Warren Davidson up in Ohio. Uh, just seen Josh Mandel, uh, Mayor Francis. I mean, it's just a list that keeps growing of people who are in politics or you know in Congress who seem to be interested in Bitcoin. So, what is the role in Bitcoin in this uh, U.S. fiscal position for you? Yeah, so uh, this is this is the heart of that heart of the yeah. article and heart of I think you know my thinking about Bitcoin all the way through. You know, as I, as I mentioned, the reason I got into it and the reason I that I I hodled through all the ups and downs is because I had that conviction around the the fiscal and monetary thesis that we've been discussing, and uh, that that fundamentally is about Bitcoin not necessarily competing with the U.S. dollar for buying your Starbucks. It can do that too, as you well know, mm-hmm. but. This, the, the, this most, the most important thing that Bitcoin can do and the most important thing that would lead to a completely different economic system is Bitcoin competing with the treasury bond as a store of value for institutions and governments and as a store of value for ordinary Americans as well. And um, what's interesting is that's, that's not so much the conversation now in Washington. I mean, if, if, you, if you think about someone like uh, Janet Yellen, the tr- who's now the treasury secretary... I mean, her view is basically that Bitcoin is this fringe thing that's used by criminals and terrorists and really has no uh, real place in the mainstream economy. That's the view of a lot of people uh, in uh, the Biden administration. It was true of some people in the Trump administration as well. So, so that the, the, the irony of it is, the you know, a lot of people in the Bitcoin community think that everyone understands that Bitcoin is this threat, this frontal assault on on the U, the primacy of the U.S. dollar. That is not what Washington thinks. Washington thinks. Bitcoin is worth nothing, that the average person watching thinks Bitcoin is worth nothing, and it's this completely fringe magic internet money that's basically that people are going to lose their shirts on. It's the kind of the hanky, the hanky view, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so the irony is uh, it may be that 
at the point in which it's obvious that Bitcoin is a competitor to the, the treasury bond, it's too entrenched for the government to ban it. Uh, but there is this midpoint in which that th there, there's a lot of uncertainty, right? And I think par part of what I'm trying to do when I walk Washington through a lot of this stuff is to say, look, um, yes, it's true that it's there. you should take Bitcoin more seriously. Bitcoin can be a competitor to the treasury bond. It already is for a small but growing number of, of institutions and governments. But uh, that's an advantage for the U.S. As you said, who knows exactly how much it is, but I, I say let's, let, let's just back of the envelope and say that half the, the crypto wealth in general and Bitcoin wealth specifically is held in the United States. I think that's a realistic uh, estimate, right? And if that's true, that's you know half a trillion or, or so of Bitcoin and a trillion overall of the, of the crypto industry. And that's just the, the, the value of the tokens. That's not including, say, the stock market value of a Coinbase mm -hmm. or the equity value of a Kraken or many of the, the unchained capitals of the world. Like all these companies that are based here and built here that, uh, that have equity value, that have uh, net worth for Americans – so well, you, also, you have the jobs and the the associated jobs that they uh, absolutely people down the line. It's like this, you know. Whenever you have a, you talk about like the problems with the car industry, but it's not just the this the automotive cars, the the manufacturers. It's the part suppliers. It's the garages. It's the, like this. This is there would be a huge impact on the U.S. economy and the uh, net wealth by banning this. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. There's a great example of that relatively recently, which is New York State was going to ban Bitcoin mining because some of the green types were saying this is environmentally terrible. Yeah. Uh, and it was the electrical, electrical workers union that sent a stern note to the Democrats in the state legislature saying, hey, these are good jobs. These are good paying jobs. We want these jobs. Don't do this to us. I did not know this. And that's how it got stopped. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a, it's, I mean, it's a whole other subject, but the the relationship between Bitcoin miners and the energy energy sector is like uh, an, an area of knowledge that an area of uh, debate and discussion which is growing fast, especially here. Yeah. Uh, but how the role of the role Bitcoin mining can play within energy reform is is incredible. Uh, absolutely, there is uh, as I think you are aware, a Compass Mining actually yep. recently uh, entered into an agreement with a, a nuclear energy startup here in town called Oclo. Uh, to to basically use Bitcoin mining to to take advantage of the extra energy that these nuclear uh, these next generation nuclear power plants will will generate. They're called small modular nuclear reactors, and that's a win win. It's a, it's a win for the nuclear guys and it's a win for for Bitcoin. Obviously, it's a it's a, a low cost source of energy if you wanna if you wanna mine Bitcoin. But one of the challenges with nuclear is it's very capital intensive up front. And you have to recoup those costs gradually over time as the electricity charges come in. And so having Bitcoin miners as a customer early on and having that upfront contract in the case of a compass, that's a, a big advantage and it helps accelerate the, the development of those technologies. Wow. Okay, sorry. Uh, back to the, the Bitcoin solution. So what is the role it should play? And also another question on that actually is, is if the US is buying half of the treasuries, just imagine if they were also stacking sats. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, they there's they're probably they're they're, they're they're probably some people who are who knows what the NSA is doing in its spare time, yeah. right? Like I, we can't completely rule anything out, uh, uh, especially given how much the, the competence there is in the U.S. government in cryptography. But uh, having said that, uh, we 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 know that the Treasury Department isn't doing it. We know that the Fed isn't doing it because for them to do it would require a certain amount of public uh, uh, notice. So so we know they're not doing it yet. 
Um, and that means they're being left behind in a sense as, as the, the value of these other assets grows and grows and grows. And so, so the question really becomes, what, how does the government react? And, and unlike, I think, a lot of hardcore anarcho-capitalist Bitcoiners, I'm of the view that there are things the government can do to damage the Bitcoin ecosystem. They can't ban the network, obviously. Mm -hmm. The network is independent of the U.S., and the network will survive. Bitcoin as a network will survive whatever the U.S. does to it, as China has proven, right? But if we want Bitcoin to have the, the, the most robust possible network, if we want the value of Bitcoin to represent the possibility of Bitcoin being this, this global store of value, this global store of wealth, then we should want there to be um, friend, a friendly regulatory climate for Bitcoin. And, and specifically, the big area where the U.S. government can either mess things up or, or, or make things work is in Americans' ability to convert U.S. dollars back and forth to Bitcoin. Right now, mm -hmm. that's obviously legal. You can do that. It's somewhat regulated if you do it through you know, regulated exchanges. But it is legal. If the U.S. were to ever turn that off and say, no, we're just, we're just going to say, well, you can't do that anymore, that would obviously be a problem, right? That would be a problem for the people, the Americans who are trying to protect themselves from monetary and price inflation. Do you think there's any appetite to do that, really? I don't think there is appetite. I mean, I think there's appetite on the far left. I think Elizabeth Warren would, would be happy to do that. Uh, another another uh, thing that uh, that that we've heard that was was rumored. I'll just say it was a rumor. I I, I can't say it say it with any more definitiveness than that. But I'd say a well uh, a credentialed rumor is that one thing the Biden administration was floating was saying if you have capital gains from crypto, we're going to tax it at eighty uh, percent, which was a technique that the U.S. government used in the nineteenth century to eliminate wildcat banking. So. In the time when the the U.S. the, the continental U.S. wasn't fully settled, um, uh, there were no dollar bills. There was not a paper currency at that time, and so local private banks would issue paper notes that could be redeemable for gold. and And like uh, certain stable coins, at least that it's hypothesized, right? They, those 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 paper notes were not backed by actual gold or hard money, and so a lot of people had these paper notes that were worthless. And so, uh, in in the late 19th century, the U.S. government basically uh, solve this problem, quote unquote, by saying, if you use these uh, non-government, we're going to issue government paper currency and the non-government paper currency, we're going to tax at some punitive uh, percentage. And we're, effectively that wiped out the old private currencies. Is this what Nick Carter wrote about recently? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's a fantastic article. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone should read it who hasn't. Yeah. So so that that that's that's the history that a lot of people uh, in, in, in the Democratic Party's left uh, look to to say, hey, we can do that again. We whether it's stable coins or crypto or Bitcoin specifically, we can. The way we can wipe it out, we don't have to ban it. We can just change the tax rate at which cryptocurrency transactions are taxed. Right now, they're taxed at the normal capital gains rate that you would pay if you had a gain in the stock market or with your home value. And if you change that to something really uh, unfavorable, then that you're going to drive a lot of people out of Bitcoin, for example. So all that to say that while we can be very pleased with ourselves and say the Bitcoin network is resilient and can survive war and can survive governments banning it, that's true. The network can survive. But in terms of a very important component of what attracts people to Bitcoin, which is the steady appreciation relative to fiat currencies, 
you can definitely impact that if they're you if you're the U.S. government. And and I don't think there's an appetite to do that today. It would take an act of Congress. And so uh, the ways in which uh, Congress are dysfunctional today in that sense work to work to to crypto's advantage or Bitcoin's advantage. But um, you know, uh, it only takes 50 votes in the Senate and a majority in the House to pass a tax law change. And so, um, you know, one just like with this uh, this infrastructure bill, where this the, the, to some people anyway, there was this tax provision that came out of nowhere. It actually didn't come out of nowhere, but um, uh, to some it did. You could do something like that that was very punitive. And uh, yes, the crypto community, the Bitcoin community, would yell and call their senator. But would that be enough? In the, with the infrastructure bill, it hasn't been enough. So there's danger. Is that that would, that would be a federal tax? It would be. A, it could be a state tax, but yeah, you, it really have to be federal because if uh, if New York were dumb enough to do that, then everyone would just move to Texas or Florida or, or Tennessee. So it would have to be federal. And how much recourse does uh, say a state of Texas have to oppose such a federal tax? Like because yeah. it feels like that would be that would be a very bad policy change for what's happening here in Texas. Texas is becoming the Bitcoin capital of the world, not just the U.S. Uh, I thought it was Bedford. Wow. I think you're changing I think, your tunes. Are I they going to let you back in the country? I think country? we're about even now. I think uh. it's a, we got we got nothing. We got nothing in the UK. It's terrible. But but it, is there any recourse? Can no. no. Short answer is no. The recourse is you'd have to leave the country, and it's, it's actually harder than that because the U.S. has this really cute law where if you tr- if you're an American citizen and you leave the country, they tax you as if you were it's a U.S. Exist, citizen. Yeah. So corporations can leave yeah. uh, at least under current tax law. They're trying to change that too, but individuals cannot. So, so that's a real danger, and that's kind of you know I, I think that's why um, there's the the there's the bear case for Bitcoin from an investment standpoint that you hear some people say, which is oh they're just going to ban it someday if it ever gets too big for its britches. I don't think that will happen in terms of a true formal ban, but there are plenty of things short of a ban that the U.S. government could do that could drive the crypto economy here and the Bitcoin economy here overseas. The, the Elizabeth Warren situation is, is really disappointing, and I feel like she needs to have a seat at the table with the right audience. I feel like she's obviously been sitting with the wrong people and been misled. And the reason it's quite disappointing is that um, I did a whole bunch of research of, uh, for a series I made about Steve Mnuchin previously, and actually I spent a lot of time watching um, her uh, interrogations of Steve Mnuchin and then follow-up things in Congress where she was talking about uh, Wall, Wall Street having essentially an arm of uh, government. And you know what? She she really stood up for the people. She really stood up against Mnuchin and what he did with, is it One West Bank? Um, she was very critical of that. Uh, she was very critical of what happened in 2008. I feel like she's just not been explained what Bitcoin really is and what it really means for, you know, uh, for the... The people I think she's thinking about. So I think I feel like if she had the right audience, she would become very pro Bitcoin. Well, I'm I'm less optimistic about that in the near to midterm, and and the reason is that the way someone like Elizabeth Warren looks at Bitcoin today is uh, there are a lot of people who have made a lot of money off Bitcoin who haven't paid the taxes they vote. That's mm-hmm. something that will offend her. There's a lot of incredible wealth that's been generated by people who were early in crypto. Who um, you know, and, and she's someone who doesn't like uh, wealth inequality, right? So those are the things that she sees that kind of dominate her perspective, mm-hmm. right? and also the volatility, which which in her mind means that ordinary people will get will left, be left holding the bag of the, if they've got an account on Binance and they've had hundred x leverage and they get screwed, then that's terrible, and we shouldn't allow that. We shouldn't allow people to harm themselves by taking on risky investment strategies like that. 
So she would she will take those elements of the story as and prioritize those over the things that you're you're hoping that she'll care about, which is hey, this is a way to disrupt the big banks. This is a way to democratize finance, you know, which I totally agree with. And reduce inequality. And reduce inequality, exactly, and protect people from inflation. All those things are true. But uh, those other factors are going to be prime, primal in her mind today. Right. I do think that as time goes on and the tax question becomes a little bit more uh, mature, where people are paying their taxes to a large degree, just like they do in the stock market or the venture capital market when they make lots of money, then um, then people will start to see it as that. And I think that's that's sort of, the, in a sense, the bull case for Bitcoin is that as the tax revenue starts to come into the federal government, they won't want to ban it for the same reason why Austin doesn't want large companies to leave Austin and New York doesn't want uh, Goldman Sachs to leave New York City or the New York Stock Exchange to move to Miami. They don't want that because that tax revenue, those jobs, are valuable to their ability to fund the government, let alone to have a, a prosperous economy for their people. And so I think as that becomes more visible and that becomes a larger share of the U.S. economy, then you have more of a case to make that, hey, this is something you should be constructive on and, and understand its economic value. All right. Well, listen, we've got a, one other subject to talk about, CBDCs. Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, man. Uh, these, these things scare me. CBDCs scare me um, because all I can think of is the Fed running the currency and this becoming attached to social credit scores. So social credit scores is this distant thing in China, which is an authoritarian state, which now is one of the uh, you know, leaders in pushing forward with CBC, CBDC tech. So the idea of just having your money connected to a social credit score is the dystopian future none of us really want. But it doesn't seem as far away from Western nations as, as well now. There's certain... You know, Rogan's been talking about the fact that uh, having vaccine passports essentially is the first step to a social credit score. You can arbitrarily arbitrarily be cut off from parts of society if you choose not to take a vaccine. I'm vaccinated. I'm not anti-vaccines. Uh, 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 I understand why people are hesitant, but I believe in free choice. And I do not, be and I believe in private companies having the choice who can come into their business, but I do not like the idea of what's happening, say, in uh, in places like Australia and Canada, oh. where people are being cut off from society because this isn't a risk-free vaccine, but it's being treated like everyone should take it. So I'm in that position where I'm I'm worried about CBDCs anyway. I don't want to give full control of my money to the government. I don't want I don't want my app to be telling me what I can have when I can have it. I just don't like that. That connected to where uh, certain government policy seems to be going as an extra layer of fear for me. So there's my uh, there's my thoughts. Well, uh, you know, I should mention as a, as a side note that at my think tank at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, we did a lot of work on why lockdowns were the wrong answer to COVID. Okay. We've done a ton of work on that. Interesting. And, and um, you know, that, that that's maybe when, when, you, when, you start, when, you, when you start doing your non-Bitcoin uh, podcast, we can, uh, we can talk about hey, that. Hey, listen, more. we can talk about that. Anyway. I mean, what's the TLDR on that? Because I was, when, it, when we had the first lockdown, there's, you know, there's a lot of information yeah. that was coming in. It was people collapsing and dying in China, which I really want to know what that was about now. Um, but, but also, you know, there was a very serious situation in Italy and we're very close to Italy. Totally. So I was a bit like, okay, I kind of like, when the lockdowns happen, I said to my kids, like, you know, this something we just kind of have to put up with, you know, is, you know we have to protect the hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And then I very quickly kind of realized it was nonsense and bullshit. Um, what was your TLDR? 
Yeah, that's that's uh, uh, you know that's that's like part one of it, which is you know we saw the pictures out of Italy, the hospitals getting overwhelmed. It was starting to happen in New York City. There was a worry that we were going to have hospitals overwhelmed in New York City. So that those first couple weeks where we where we locked down, you know, you could understand that that was you know we didn't know what was going on. Let's just sort of take a pause for a minute. But then there was actually one of our peer or uh, uh, competitor rival think tanks. Uh, that put out a, a paper saying, uh, that's normally pro-free market, pro-choice, saying, uh, well, we've got to, we've got to lock down the, econo- uh, the economy for, for a, a few months here, just a few, just a few months, and then we'll have these cures. We'll come, the drug companies will generate these cures for, for COVID, and then we'll be fine. Then we can lift up uh, the, the, the curtains and everyone can go back to work. And I'm looking at that as someone who spent 12 years investing in startup biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies, understanding how what the timeline is for de- developing new treatments, new cures, and how hard it is and how uncertain it is and how risky it is. I'm like, that is insane. It, it takes months, if not years, to develop new treatments. You're not going to have new treatments in a matter of weeks. And the average small business has about a month's worth of cash on its balance sheet. You lock them down for a month with no opportunity to get revenue? They're going belly up. Now we solved that problem by printing the trillions of dollars and handing it to, to lots of people. So we we at least kept many of those businesses afloat. Deferred the problem. Deferred the problem. I mean, That's if, the right way to put uh, it. I was yeah, in New York exactly. recently, and I think a lot of these restaurants uh, are going to be going bust. Uh, uh, the only the the only restaurants I am that were full were top end. The 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 uh, kind of regular restaurants in the, the kind of middle ground many of them were kind of yeah. half empty and someone someone made me realize recently i don't know if this is correct but they they've just about to end the, the rent protection for mm. uh for companies within new york as well um so he, the the view was many of these restaurants are now insolvent as well it, it's a problem it's going to lead to more consolidation more concentration of economic power which yeah. which is a huge problem so, so, so the economic damage was being undersold by those who favored lockdowns was part of our argument. And the other part of our argument was that we knew enough in April of 2020 about COVID to know that we didn't have to lock down the entire economy. We knew that outdoor transmission was very, very low. It was mostly indoor transmission. And we also knew that disproportionately, it was the elderly who, and particularly the elderly in nursing homes and long-term care facilities and care homes, as you call them in Europe, uh, that uh, that where the deaths were happening in the U.S., we were the first people to do this analysis. No one had actually bothered to do it before. Forty to fifty percent, depending on the exact time point, forty to fifty percent of the deaths from COVID in the United States were taking place in nursing homes and long-term care facilities that housed zero point six percent of the U.S. population. So we were locking down the country, going to panics, closing schools where kids are at, at, at almost zero risk of serious illness or death from COVID. We're closing schools, which is incredibly damaging to those individuals, to their, their communities. But we're not doing anything to solve the problem in nursing homes where people really are at risk of dying. So a big part of our argument was, if you actually look at the scientific evidence as to where the real public health risk is, let's be very aggressive in protecting people in nursing homes, but let's keep schools open. Let's uh, keep, let's try to figure out ways to keep every type of business open that can operate safely, not merely the so-called essential businesses. And they define essential business. Well, you're a grocery store, you're essential. If you're a car wash, you're not essential. But what if you're like one of those robotic car washes where you just drive through and it's all automated? Like you can operate that safely. It's you don't have to lock that down, right? So there, that was the kind of stupidity we were trying to get over and say, look. There's actually a lot of things that we can do to reopen society and reopen the economy. And yes, let's respect that the virus is dangerous for certain populations and be careful in those settings. But let's be case by case about it. Right. 
And Texas adopted that approach, which we were grateful for, as did Florida and some other states. And that's where the non-federal element of our system was really valuable, right? Because mm-hmm. if we had a one-size-fits-all federal uh, approach, which a lot of people were pushing for, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to get those recommendations, those ideas to different states. So uh, so we made an impact to a degree, but not not everywhere, obviously, with those with those ideas. Well, at least you had that impact. Uh, and it's been very clear for me, traveling back around the U.S., where I've been to... Uh, Ohio and Miami and Texas and Tennessee and uh, uh, New York and I'm going to be going to Vegas and like I'm I'm seeing it all seeing the diversity of it yeah yeah I'm seeing the diversity of it and for me it's been very clear that Texas and Miami and uh, Tennessee have got it right right absolutely people people aren't dying here at at a significantly faster rate than anywhere else. And we've had a much more rational approach. I'm not sure that's entirely true. I would want to double check that because I I did have a look at the death rates. And I think in Florida, there was one point that Florida might have been like one in four. Well, what, I can't what, remember that. I, I, I don't think that's exactly correct. Well, I, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush. If you want yeah. to get really uh, precise about the stats. Yeah. So in 2020, let's say pre-vaccine is 2020 and post-availability of vaccines is 2021. In 2020, the death rates, say, between California, Florida, and and Texas were roughly the same. Even though California locked down heavily, Texas and Florida were much more light touch. In 2021, the death rates in Texas and Florida have been a little higher than in California. And the reason for that is there's a lot more vaccine hesitancy in Texas and Florida, where the vaccination rate in California is higher. So in 2021, the death rates are more driven by the vaccine rates, vaccination rates. In 2020, they were independent of lockdown strategies. It's kind of ironic, really, because you, you kind of want the mix of the two. I know some people will be upside by this, but um, you want to be as open as possible and you want as many people who should get vaccinated. Yeah. That's the good combination. And what you've got is you've got this kind of like uh, mixed picture where it's the people who are locking down the most in California are also the most protected. Right. So should could, should be the most open. That, that, that is the, that is the, the paradox. And, um, you well, know, that is, and uh, the, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have, have been a part of the problem here where they've said, if you get the vaccine, you should still wear two masks when you're outdoors or like combining Fauci and, and CDC guidance. Uh, two-year-olds should wear masks in school. I mean, it's just stuff like that that just absolutely is not scientific, makes no sense, and leads people to mistrust public health authorities when they say things that are actually true, like the vaccines are safe and effective and you should get one. So uh, that that um, uh, undermining of public health authority and public health trust has been a, has been a big problem here. And uh, yeah, that's again, uh, it's a, we could we could spend lots of time on you that if we wanted to, but we should talk about CBDCs. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. I, you know, I'd love. To, I'd, I'd want to go away and do a bit of research and come back with just better knowledge, better facts to sure. do that. But I think that'll be a fascinating subject to come into again. Let's talk about CBDCs. Yeah. So it's one of the things that's interesting about CBDCs, and I was, I was thinking about this as you were you were giving your uh, introductory comments there. The crypto community has been curiously sort of pro CBDCs in the sense, you know, if you if you read the press coverage, you think. So, so I'll, I'll explain what I mean when I say this. When I, when I read the press coverage of CBDCs, a lot of it has the tone of, isn't it cool that the Federal Reserve is embracing the blockchain? Isn't it cool that even Janet Yellen is talking about CBDCs and, and Jay Powell, these people who we think of as totally distant from and removed from crypto and blockchain technology, they like CBDCs. And, and, and you hear another group of people say, well... You know, it doesn't. I don't care about CBDCs, but they're inevitable. They're going to happen here. We should just kind of get used to it. You hear this a lot from, say, the venture capital community. Well, forget the venture capital community. Where, where are you reading the kind of pro that they're into blockchain? Because it's definitely not in my circles. 
Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that, and that may be because you're you're a Bitcoin centric guy, and and so as I am. But like you know, when you read the crypto more broader crypto press, where where maybe there's a a more friendliness to things outside of Bitcoin, uh, the the view is oh, it's it's, it's it's isn't it so cool that this rebel a non mainstream technology that we have all embraced and we're on the early side of is now being embraced by the establishment. Right. Okay. Isn't that cool? That it validates us as the the crypto the cypherpunks, right? And uh, and I've been just like that makes absolutely no sense yeah. because CBDCs are uh, are tools of totalitarianism. Of course. And um, do you know what I uh, put that on Facebook the other day? Uh, I, I broke this piece on Facebook because I'm always trying to like just share bits of knowledge with friends and family. I'm, you know, I, th- I think most of them find me annoying um, and they think I'm just some weird Bitcoin guy. But like every now and again, one person gets in touch and says, "Do you know what?" Tell me a bit more about Bitcoin. But I put a thing on there about CBDCs, and I said they're tyranny. My um, my friends, my, well, my one of my mum and dad's best friends, blocked me. She said, "I've had enough of this now. I'm blocking you." You, you sound you sound a little bit like you're foaming at the mouth if you use words like totalitarianism to describe this acronym that most people don't even know what it is, right? So I'm mindful of that as someone who spends a lot mm-hmm. of time talking to people in Washington, and I can tell you, when I talk to uh, very senior people in the government who are actively thinking about this topic, they they are like, oh yeah, CBDCs, this makes a lot of sense. It's a way of uh, improving the settlement time for US dollars. You know, the wire transfer system is so slow and if we had a CBDC, we could do all this stuff more efficiently and it's just the way of the world. We're, we're just basically, we're using FinTech to make the US dollar better and and boy, we wouldn't want China's, uh, we wouldn't want the ECNY, the, 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 the CBDC for China, to, to take market share from the dollar. So we've got to keep up with them and, and have our own version. So these are the things that people are saying in Washington. They're, they're not saying what you're saying or I'm saying. Well, if they're managed by people with good intentions who you could trust, but you, the reason we have Bitcoin is you can't trust humans and money. Well, one thing that uh, that is very helpful, very helpful to those those of us who don't want who don't want to sound like we're crazy, even if we might be, you know, we might have our own uh, eccentricities over time. It's not sounding like you're crazy is actually important when you're dealing with Washington because if they think you're crazy, they're just not going to listen to you, yeah. right? And so, one thing that was really helpful that happened recently is that uh, President Biden nominated uh, as the head of the officer of the Co- office of the comptroller of the currency, the job that Brian Brooks had in the Trump administration. Yep. Uh, a woman uh, named, uh, I'm blanking on her first name, it's, it's Saul Omarova. Okay. And Saul Omarova is a Cornell law professor who once wrote, uh, 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 just a year or two ago, uh, like a 60-page paper uh, 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 entitled the, De- the Democratic Ledger, if I'm, if I'm recalling, or the People's Ledger. It's called the People's Ledger. Was it about Bitcoin? It was about uh, CBDCs. I know. But, I mean, I, I yeah, knew you were say that. No, I'm making the joke is because <laughs> Bi- sorry, Bitcoin yeah. is the people's ledger. B- Bitcoin. I mean, so yes. Well, she she her view is, uh, and, and she uses the term "peoples" in the way that we talk about the People's Republic of China. Peoples. Uh, she is a graduate of Moscow State University back when the, the, it was part of the Soviet Union. Great. Not, she's not a communist. The, so she she literally wrote this paper saying the virtue of a CBDC is that we can use it to wipe out the private banking system. One doesn't need a private place to deposit to have a checking account or a savings account if you have a CBDC run by the Federal Reserve because everyone would have their bank account at the Fed, and that would enable the Fed to deposit money in your account if they wanted to or take money out of your account if they wanted to. Which sounds like a 
big step towards communism, well, certainly socialism. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know, if 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 uh, if people in the U.S. don't like single payer healthcare or state run healthcare British style, well, wait until you have a British style banking system. I mean, not British style, but like a Soviet style banking system, right? Yeah, yeah. Where, where you have an NHS, but it's the banking system. Yeah, where, it sounds horrendous. Yeah, and, and that and that's uh, and she and she talks about this as a good thing. She's like, well, if we had a CBDC, we could take money into your account. We could take money out. We could short stocks that we thought were overvalued. We could use the money to invest in green infrastructure, which is Congress's job, not the Federal Reserve's job. But because, of course, the Fed can print money, imagine if you basically didn't need Congress anymore. The Fed controlled the dollar, could print another trillion dollars to spend on whatever it wanted. That's the world that she's envisioning, and that is the world that a CBDC would enable. Now, when I talked to people in uh, Washington, I was just there last week, uh, kind of walking them through through these uh, problems— some of them, some of them would say, "Well, we don't have to have a CBDC like that. We could have like a basically a CBDC light, where it's only a, a way for uh, banks and the Fed to interact with each other. It's just sort of a fancier version of FedWire, the, the the wire transfer system that the Federal Reserve uses, and it's restricted from." any sort of interfacing with average people. Sure. Yeah, I mean, like once you actually go through the trouble of creating a CBDC, which is actually the hard part, it's very easy to just flip a switch and say, we're going to use this for a lot of these broader and more ambitious purposes that that isn't used for now. So one thing that I'm spending a lot of time on uh, in in my writing and my policy work is this topic because people just aren't aware, particularly in Washington, and I think some in the crypto community, some very significant figures in the crypto community are not aware of how dangerous it would be if the Federal Reserve controlled every bank account in America, not only what money was in it and what money was not in it, but they could have visibility in every single one of your financial transactions. Uh, they could turn you off if they wanted to. Automatically uh, fine you. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the, the points I make in an article that uh, that that uh, is coming out very soon on this topic is, you know, when China... Uh, shut down Apple Daily, the the pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong. They didn't do it by censoring, formally censoring the publication. They had jailed a number of the executives, including the the publisher, Jimmy Lai. Uh, That didn't stop them from publishing. They were publishing while he was in jail. The thing that they eventually were able to do to shut down Apple Daily was to turn off their bank accounts. It's like what they did with WikiLeaks, right? You know, and the difference was there with WikiLeaks—they were they, able to get Bitcoin. They got right? Bitcoin, yeah. Uh, but but that uh, was uh, now avail- unavailable to uh, to Apple Daily because Bitcoin's banned in China, so they can't pay their journalists, they can't pay their suppliers, they can't pay their printers, and that's how they shut down Apple Daily. And so we do not want the government to have that level of control. It's particularly no. bad for lower income and average people. You, you think about the cybersecurity problem we have in America today where so many things that are, you know, should be protected private information are basically hacked out of government databases. Now you're going to say that the, the federal government with its competence in those areas is now going to have a record of every single financial transaction of every American and it's just a sitting duck for some smart Russian or Chinese hacker to basically download all that information. It's it's absolutely insane, you know. Uh, and there are a couple of people within the Federal Reserve system who've who've made some of these points. Who've said, you know, look, I mean, you, you know, you're you're creating. It's it, the, the title of one talk by a Fed uh, governor who's against CBDCs was, "It's a solution in search of a problem." Meaning, like there are already things off the shelf. We have. We can make better stable coins that are backed by cash or backed by hard assets 
that can serve the same purpose as a CBDC if your sole goal is to have faster and more efficient transactions. We can do that today. We can do that on the Lightning Network, right? Mm -hmm. There are lots of tools that we have to have fast, low-cost, efficient transactions. We don't need a central bank digital currency for this. And if you are a believer in decentralized financial technology, central the word central in central bank digital currencies should should be a, a problem for you. Well, there's other, another big concern there as well. Um, we only saw last week where the entire Facebook infrastructure went down, and I think that cost them $100 million, or was it $100 million an hour or something. Whatever it did, it cost Facebook a lot of money because of a mistake within the infrastructure. We actually have competing payment rails at the moment. So look, even if part of, you know, banks, the banks tend to have problems. You know, Lloyd's Bank might go down at some point, but I've usually got cash, or I've usually got a credit card like an Amex. I've got competing uh, access to pounds that I can use whenever something breaks down. I also have Bitcoin now. If you put the, if you give control of the entire financial rails to the US government, you create a central point of attack for if the financial rails break. Imagine, imagine the CBDC US dollar blockchain. Right. It goes down like Solano went down or like um, Ethereum went down. The entire country would ground to a halt. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do anything. So that, to me, is a big fear. And also, look, I don't like the banks, but I need banking services, and what I want is competition within banks. Totally. I don't want a high street bank anymore because they're annoying. I want a neobank, but I want banking services. I, I, I'm very fearful of CBDCs, and the fact that China loves them so much is a good indicator for me that they're fucking terrible. Yeah, the fact that the China that China is the world leader and CBDCs should tell you something. It should yep. tell you who understands what the advantages and virtues or value of a CBDC is. The virtue of it is, and I'm using the word virtue in its broadest sense, mm -hmm. that it allows you complete surveillance and control into people's financial lives. And, you know, this is why it has to be raised now because uh, you and I understand this, but Jay Powell, you know, when you ask him what is, you know, what what the virtue or or, or the, the the pros or cons are of CBDC, is always like, this is great. If we had a CBDC, we wouldn't need cryptocurrency. We wouldn't need Bitcoin if we had a CBDC. It's like uh, it's actually the exact opposite. If, yeah. you, if you have a CBDC, more people will want to use Bitcoin because they'll want that guarantee of of privacy and, and resilience. Uh, and so that just tells you the level of education for very senior and influential and impactful people in our financial system who just don't understand yet uh, these problems. Now, the good news is there was supposed to be this re big report from the Federal Reserve. It was supposed to come out in September. It didn't, but it's going to come out at some point where they ruminate on uh, on CBDCs and, and, their, and their value. Uh, and uh, my hope is that some of this feedback will start to filter into that report, and, and they'll, they'll acknowledge that there are risks as well as whatever the rewards are. They are totally overwhelmed by the risk and that we won't see a CBDC. But I think more people who understand the, the virtue of Bitcoin need to, to, to vocalize that, point, mm -hmm. right? Because I, I feel like it's been very, very quiet. There is not, there, you know, the Bitcoin community has not come out as a community and said, uh, CBDCs are a threat to our freedom. That has not happened for sure. And I think it's because for whatever reason, it's just not been on people's radar. It is absolutely top of mind in Washington. And it's something that people really need to, to start bringing the fight to. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, Rishi Sunak, the, uh, um, uh, the equivalent of a treasury secretary in the UK, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, I think he is. Am I right in that? I'll have to double check that. Um, but uh, he's come out in support of CBDCs and he uh, annoyingly wanted to call it Britcoin, which I thought was <laughs> fucking embarrassing. But listen, look, um, I completely agree with you. It's a complete threat against our, uh, our freedoms. Um, 
Avik, I've loved this. This is great, man. We're going to have to definitely do this again. We've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of ground, man. I probably could, we could have done a lot more. I would have loved to have got into some of the COVID stuff with you, but I'll come back and talk to you about that at some point because I'm always kind of evolving my understanding of what it is and, you know, response by governments and the pharmaceuticals. But I also... Uh, love just talking to you about the healthcare industry. Uh, as I really want to see that report in Switzerland. I want to find out what they're doing. But um, yeah, I love this. Thank you. We should definitely do this again. I probably every time I come to Austin, I'm gonna be like, yeah, can we do something else? So thank you for your hospitality and thanks for coming on. It's it's my pleasure, Peter. You're like the Anthony Bourdain of our community. Oh, shut it's, up. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's 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 just great. It's a, uh, I've been I've been a long time listener, so it's it's an honor to be here with you. Um, that's a praise which is too high because I'm a, a big fan of Anthony Bourdain. But I do appreciate uh, I appreciate this. If people want to follow what you're doing, if they want to see any of the work you're working on, where can they do that? The best place to find most of it is probably to follow me on Twitter at A-V-I-K, just my first name. And our think tank is freeop.org, F-R-E, F as in Frank, R-E-O-P-P.org. It's the foundation for research on equal opportunity. Okay, mate. Amazing. I'll, um, we'll put that all in the show notes. Appreciate your time. And yeah, we'll do it again sometime. Thanks, Pete. Okay, if you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, you can hop into my Telegram group or hit me up on my email, which is hello at what Bitcoin did. Com. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, if you've heard this message every week and you've never done it, hop on to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Hopefully, you love the show and you're like, you know what, Pete, I'm going to give you five stars. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you come every week and you hate it and you think it's shit and you want to leave one star. That's fine. I take anything. All right. I got to go and catch a plane. I love you all and I'll see you all on Friday.